Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Burlington's mayor is not happy with parts of the Ontario budget, in particular, one part that would cancel incremental increases in gas tax funding. Ontario has also cut flood management grants to watershed protection agencies across the province almost in half. And the Mueller report was released today. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Municipalities around the province have started to, to look at the budget now and see what just how this is going to have a, an impact on their communities. And uh, not everybody's happy about this. I, you know, I know there's a lot of good news, thumbs up, uh, cheering, of course, coming from MPPs, but, you know, that's what you do, I guess, when you're on the team, right? But uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger had some concerns, and Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward is uh, not happy with parts of the Ontario budget, in particular uh, something to do with the gas tax. I mean, want to bear down and get into the details on this. So to that end, we're pleased to welcome uh, Burlington's Mayor Marianne Meadward uh, to the Bill Kelly Show on CHML to talk about that. Madam Mayor, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today. Great to be here. Thanks for your interest. I'm glad you've done this because, and, and again, I know some people are going to say, well, there you go, knocking Doug Ford. No, it's, it's, it's the implication that this is having. Uh, and that's why, for instance, last uh, show yesterday, we had Mario Pastorero on from the uh, the Paramedics Association because of some of the things that the province is doing. Uh, because it's it's all well and good when you're reading a budget to say, well, this is what the province is going to do. But uh, as we all know too well in Burlington and in Hamilton, uh, that can have serious implications. So let's 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 focus in on on one of the things that I know that you're concerned about, and that's gas tax funding. So what uh, what has happened is. The uh, previous government announced a doubling of uh, our share of gas tax revenue from two to four cents over a 10 year period to start um, this year uh, right away. So two to four cents. When we calculated what that means for Burlington, so the province in this budget has frozen it at two. So there will be no future increases. What that means for Burlington taxpayers is uh, $20 million has just disappeared. And we will continue to invest in transit. It's critically important uh, for our community, as it is for many other communities. And we're going to now have to figure out how we fund that infrastructure. This is new buses. This is uh, drivers. This is, uh, you know, everything related to transit that we can use that money for. And, uh, and it's gone with, uh, with a single announcement. Well, and, and this is why we need to, to do this analysis, and I'm glad you brought this to our attention, because it's not just Burlington, obviously, it's going to be uh, every, just about every other community that, that, that benefits from this is not going to benefit from it anymore, uh, and it's, it's a kick in the pants to the communities, because if, essentially, this, this really amounts to, da- to downloading, doesn't it? This is exactly downloading, and it's not just happening here. We're starting to get details on some other things, and and we'll continue, I'm sure, in in coming weeks to get more details. But they have cut funding to conservation authorities for hazard protection. I mean, this is exactly why they were created, is to protect human life and property from flood risks. And they have cut the program across Ontario by 50%. So so that's another, uh, for, for us here in Halton, uh, for Conservation Halton, that's hundred over $100,000 that we will have to come up with. So they're downloading, you know, they're balancing the books essentially at the province by downloading costs and funding to the municipal level taxpayers. So so it is downloading. We, yeah, it, we have all, 
go ahead. No, you. I, I'm just. I'm. I'm flabbergasted by this because I know that they say, "Well, we're trying to balance the books," but essentially, what they're doing is simply saying, "Look, that's. It's. Let's face it. I mean, when talk, we're going to talk with this, uh, the flood control thing with the conservation authorities with Councilor Clark in a few minutes on the program here too. But right. it, essentially, it, it's. It's not as if you can say, "Well, I guess we're just not going to have that flood control anymore." You got to pay for it now out of out, out of provincial or uh, municipal taxes. Exactly. The the investments still need to be made and. What isn't perhaps clearly understood uh, at the province is that municipalities are constantly looking for ways to cut administrative costs or uh, find efficiencies and, and do all of those things. And in fact, in Burlington, our most recent budget was the lowest increase in eight years. We found a lot of savings and, uh, and yet delivered some, uh, some investments for the community. So we, we're already on that path. And now what is being downloaded to us are essential investments in, in transit, in flood protection. Uh, you know, public health is another area that we, uh, we are seeing cuts from the province that we can talk about. And, and these, these programs need to be, this is frontline services for our community. These investments have to be made. And, and if the province is not going to honor their funding commitments, it means we have to make up the balance some other way. So it will be downloaded to the, the, the municipal taxpayer. It's money out of their pocket. And I understand, well, I don't understand, but I know where they're coming from in situations like this. They're looking at this as a, as a, as a bookkeeping exercise. We're going to eliminate that cost, eliminate that cost, and that's going to, he's, I mean, he's promised that he's going to try to find $6 billion in savings. I mean, he hasn't done that, but he seems to be doing it just like some other governments have done on the backs of municipalities and simply saying, uh, you know, we're going to cut this out and cut that out. Now, I know, and you, you, we all both know the game of politics, and you know, blame the previous government for this and that and for overspending and being frivolous with money. Uh, and there may be some validity to some of those accusations. But the services that they're cutting here are, are, are as you say, essential services. I mean, you know, the first, the, before the, you know, the door was uh, even closed on his, the premier's office, I mean, he, he, he said, okay, we're going to kill the cap-and-trade program. That had an impact on your your bottom line, too, because all of a sudden that money that was supposed to come from cap-and-trade for infrastructure repairs for your, your boards of education and for the city is gone. Now the gas tax funding that you had planned on for the next few years is yep. gone. Yeah, and, and it's really a misnomer to call these savings. These are not savings. It, this is simply shifting the burden of paying for these essential services from the province to the municipalities and to the property tax base. So that's, that's all that's happened here. This is, these, are, these are investments that have to be made. So there's no savings here. It's just uh, a different uh, you know, group of people that are going to have to pay for it. And, uh, and that, that's what's wrong with this. The, the other uh, cut that we know about is $200 million from public health units. The province already does not honor their funding commitments at Halton regional level. So just as a, for example, there's one program where uh, the province uh, asks us to deliver that service and they say, well, we'll fund it 100%. Over the years, as the growth in population has increased and the demand for those services has increased, the funding hasn't changed at all. So in actual fact, those you know, and this is just one program, but I can talk about many others like it, that they are funding to a 54% level already. And now they're going to cut another $200 million from public health units. So so again, the services, we, we have picked up that tab at 
at Halton Region because we believe and we know the services have to be delivered to the community. And uh, so we're we're delivering uh, these 100% cost share programs with half the funding from the province already. What what kind of an impact does this have on, on regional and, and city budgets, for instance, in your particular case? Uh, you, you've put the budget to bed. I mean, you've, you've had cost projections, yeah. you've done this. Now they come back with their budget, and essentially you guys are going to have to scramble down and say, where are we going to find this money? We will. Uh, we do have reserves set aside uh, that we can use for uh, unexpected uh, surprises like huh. this. So, so we can manage. Uh, we can probably manage this year. But the, the the bigger nut to crack is the 19 million over 10 years. To give an idea of what that means for Burlington taxpayers, every 1.67 million dollars that uh, that we have to find some other way. That's a one percent increase on the property tax base. So just to give you an order of magnitude, that's a massive hit to us over the next 10 years. Well, exactly. That, and, and I understand, the, you know, the, that's the bookkeeping area. That Yeah, there are reserves for that. But reserves, as we know, are really just for one-time instances like this. you got 10 years of, of this coming forward, at least 10, at least that you know of. And, know and, of. and you've got a commitment to transit. You've got a commitment to some of the other services that you've talked about that were already approved in your budget. Uh, and now you got to go scrambling and say, what are we going to do in year two, year three, year four down the road? Exactly. And and a lot of this is related to population growth. The, you know, uh, some of our services are very population heavy. Uh, social services just being one example that we've that we've talked about. And uh, so the funding from the province. So they've, they've said you have to grow or you have to accommodate this population, but they're not honoring their commitments to fund the programs that we need for a growing population. So there is. There is a sentiment at Halton Region that, you know, we're going to stop uh, accepting all this growth until you fund what you have committed to fund. Uh, honor the commitments that, that you've made and, and transit being a huge one. And, you know, I think one of the other really disappointing parts of this budget is there are winners and losers. Ottawa will win. Um, you know, Hamilton gets a billion dollars for LRT, the subways in Toronto. And I don't begrudge any of those investments. They're important, and we have to make investments in transit, and long overdue. But but you don't create winners and losers and rob Peter to pay Paul. And that's exactly what's happening with some of the smaller municipalities like Burlington that uh, that we're getting the short end of that stick. There's, there's another point that I think we need to reiterate here, too, and I know this was a... a, a popular talking point back in the 1990s when the Harris government started to download all these costs. but it, And I think it bears repeating now because of what seems to be happening here. Is is all of a sudden you now in Burlington and in Halton Region are going to have to find the money for this, and that's going to have to come from the taxpayers in Halton Region and in the city of Burlington. But now we're getting into this whole concept and this whole discussion about regressive taxing. Uh, I, I would venture if you stopped five people on Brand Street right now and said, how much do you pay in, in provincial tax? They don't know. Because yep. it, it's it's done. It's 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 <laughs> off your paycheck or whatever. You don't even see it. But they know what they pay in municipal taxes. Absolutely. Because that's after tax dollars. That's after yep. you get your paycheck. After the federal tax and provincial tax has been taken off. Here you go, Bill. Here's your take home pay. And then the municipality comes along and says, Whoa, whoa! Now you got to pay provi- or municipal tax on top of that. So this is actually going to be more expensive for Burlington taxpayers because they're going to have to use after tax dollars to do this. And to subsidize larger municipalities that are getting those investments. Yeah. There, there's no way around that. We, we will be subsidizing, which is exactly what the issue with downloading was. And that's why it was so destructive to, uh, to municipal tax bases is that, you know, uh, places like Burlington and Halton were subsidizing much larger 
um, you know, much larger municipalities that whose tax rates are actually lower than ours. You know, Toronto's got one of the lowest tax rates, and 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 yet Burlington residents and others are are funding, uh, you know, funding some of those costs. And and you know what what I think is is potentially so destructive about all this is that you know it it sets municipalities against each other, and that's not what we should be doing. It shouldn't be this divide and conquer, winners and losers. You know, we need we need across Ontario predictable funding streams. And and ultimately, um, you know, this is my long term goal. We need a new relationship between cities in the province and cities in the federal government. We need a share of the taxes that are collected that come straight to us without having to queue up apply for programs, spend an enormous amount of time chasing grant money, only to be given the short shrift as we are being uh, in this budget. It's got to be frustrating, obviously, for you and, and, and the rest of your councillors, because uh, when you look at other jurisdictions, and, you know, as a member of the G7, I mean, we understand that I think we're the only one, first, uh, first of all, that doesn't have a national transportation policy of all the other G7 nations. But even if yep. you just look south of the border of the United States, there is that relationship that you've just described between the federal, state, and municipal governments. Uh, they work together. There's, uh, there's sustainable funding for an awful lot of infra- infrastructure exactly. programs. We're going in the, the wrong direction in this country. We absolutely are, and and we are addressing that through the Association of Municipalities of Ontario and also through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And, you know, to to talk about the federal level, one of the things that we've been talking about is an end to what's called incrementality, where program envelopes are only for projects that are incremental to what you were already doing. Well, municipalities don't have a secret, you know, folder of projects that really need to be done, you know, sitting in a drawer somewhere. We plan what we need and we need the funding exactly for that. And and so we've been working with uh with the FCM to get to get rid of that notion that that we just need the feds to give us our share, give our taxpayers back some of their own money and let the cities do uh you know invest where it's most needed because we know our business best we know where that money needs to go we work very closely with our communities it's the most direct level of government we hear from our residents what's important to them and we are in a position to act very quickly on those things if we have that predictable funding source which is where ultimately where we need to go as a country and where we need to go as a province well and again that goes back to this whole idea about how you are taxed as a municipality i mean federal and provincial governments simply say we we want this much money money from your income, uh, and then we'll decide what we're going to do with it later on. Uh, the right. cities work in the totally different opposite. Here's what we want to do this year. Here's the bill for it. Okay, now let's, let's, let's raise the money for it through taxes. Uh, it's, it's much more direct and a much more transparent to, uh, way to, to govern than, than what we get from the, fe- the feds and from the province. Well, and we, you know, like many municipalities in Burlington, we have a 10-year capital program. We know exactly what we're anticipating to spend for the next 10 years. So we just we just need the the govern the various the two levels of government to uh, to honor the fact that we know what what our business is and to give us the funding that we are owed and our taxpayers are owed and not to download those costs even further onto the property tax base. Uh, you got your work cut out for you, and I know staff are probably <laughs> you know sharpening their pencils right now to try to come up with this. Uh, Marianne, thank you so much for the time and uh, good luck going forward on this. Thank you very much. Take care. That's uh, Burlington Mayor Marianne Mead Ward. Uh, echoing the sentiments, I think, of an awful lot of mayors right across the province right now as they start to go through the budget and say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, let's see what kind of an impact that's going to have on us. And it will on you and us and 
Cities are going to have to rethink now some of the budgets they've already passed and some of the programs they said, hey, we're going to do this this year. They may have to say, eh, not so much because we've got to pay for this now because the province has reneged on a promise. That's the way government works, sadly. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we spent the first part of the show talking with Burlington Mayor Mary Ann Mead Ward about uh, their concern about some of the uh, essentially downloaded projects that uh, cities are going to have to deal with now after the Ontario budget from last Thursday. And uh, they are significant. Uh, one of them that she did touch on, of course, uh, has to do with conservation authorities. Ontario has cut flood management grants uh, to watershed protection agencies, and that's going to have an impact uh, here in the Hamilton area. Brad Clark is uh, city councillor for this, uh, Hamilton and also a member of the Conservation Authority. Yeah, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Brad. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Bill. How about yourself? Good. Sir? Not the best news you could have got out of this budget, is it? A bit of a surprise, a bit of a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been down this road before. Let's talk a little bit about what they're doing, first of all. Uh, they've basically cut your funding in half for this, haven't they? Yeah, 50%. So the Hamilton Conservation Authority will lose uh, $85,000 from this. And the Niagara Conservation Authority uh, Board, and I sit on both boards, by the way, um, they'll lose a similar amount. Both of those organizations have the wherewithal to find the savings and, and fix this this year. But it's important to note that both authorities have already passed their, their budgets and have already approved the levies to municipalities. So they really don't have a way of gaining any additional support from the municipalities. They're going to have to do this on their own financial planning within their own organizations. You're going to have to uh, get bigger contribution boxes for the uh, the trails, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Something's got to go on. And, and that's what Mayor Ward was talking to us about as well, Brad. And as I say, you've been down this road before. Uh, you've already done your budget uh, for the Conservation Authority, and, as you have for the city. Uh, and that's all sorted. You've got a big bow on it now. Now you're going to have to go back and say, where are we going to get this? And I know that there are reserves, and they, probably for this year you guys can handle this. But how do you how do you handle this going forward? Uh, going forward, we don't have a, a, a plan yet, to be quite candid. Uh, we do have some reserves. They're not as healthy as we would like them to be. Um, in in Hamilton, we well, both boards, I should say very clearly, they, they've made a commitment to continue to maintain flood protection, the monitoring, and the public warning services. So the, the residents in Hamilton and Niagara will not see a change there. But within the organization, we're going to have to find those efficiencies and find those savings from other programs and relocate funding over. Well, therein lies the problem, and, and, and that's the, the quid pro quo here, isn't it? That's, okay, we're going to continue to do this, folks. Don't worry about that. But something else has to give. Yeah, and, and the challenge for us, or, or let me rephrase that, my bigger fear, uh, I know that Hamilton and Niagara will be able to find the ways and means to do this on the short term, but the smaller conservation authorities across the province, northern Ontario, they don't have the same budgets or reserves to, abor- uh, to absorb such impacts and that really could potentially create a risk for for failures of their flood prevention program. Brad, you've always been heavily involved in, in conservation, uh, even in provincial politics and certainly at the municipal level as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe you could just outline for our listeners exactly how this is going to impact and, and the importance of conservation authorities. I mean, we tend to forget sometimes, if you live, for instance, in the inner city, we were this is a watershed and there's water under us, there's water around us, there's water everywhere. And uh, there can be problems, as we've seen. Well, let's start with the, the, the core um, mandate of conservation authorities across the province of Ontario has always been to prevent flooding. The actual risk that we're trying to abate is flooding. And so the real question is, should the province pay 
to abate flooding and preserve properties and public safety in advance or pay to rebuild after such flooding occurs. And, and in past governments and, and all the conservation authorities would argue that the obvious answer is flood prevention programming is paramount. And so it's a little bit frustrating to, to see this type of reduction under the auspices of, of cost cutting and, and finding efficiency. And, and I get that, Bill. I understand and I respect the government's desire to, to find savings. Sure. But we have to balance the search for those efficiencies against public health and safety. And this is one of those core areas where you either pay now or you pay later. If, we don't, if somehow the flood prevention program in Ontario fails and we get serious flooding and property is destroyed and, and, and life is at risk, then the government of Ontario has to cough up much more money down the road to to mitigate that uh, afterwards and re- make the repairs. Well, and therein lies the th- the save the, you know the, this whole thing about well we're saving money. You're not really saving money at all by doing this, are you? I mean, some first of all, somebody's going to have to pay for it, and if it's insufficient, as you say, long term somebody's going to have to pay for it. And boy, we know that. I mean, this is you're not speaking in the hypothetical here, are you, Brad? I mean, we've seen this happen in Hamilton over the last ten years. We have seen some serious flooding um, in southern Ontario. We've seen flooding in Brantford. We've seen flooding through Caledonia. Uh, there, it's, it's, it's not uncommon. And the dams that are controlled by the conservation authorities, and I think it's important citizens understand that, that the cons- like Hamilton, for example, we have two dams that we control. And so we hold floodwaters back when the rain is heavy, and then we slowly release it afterwards in order to prevent flooding downstream. So we will continue to do that. Niagara will continue to do that. But the risk is uh, if other, other conservation authorities do not have the funding to continue to do those programs, then there is a real risk that there could be serious flooding and, and ultimately the province would be paying much more than the amount that they have reduced the budgets by. I, as soon as I saw this story, I started thinking about some of those stories. Uh, and you mentioned Spencer Creek, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dundas has had some terrible problems with flooding in the past, despite the fact that the Conservation Authority is doing what they can uh, with the dams. Uh, we certainly know, we saw that in the east end of the city, of course, down through the Red Hill Valley and the watershed down through there. Uh, you just asked Council Collins and Council Marula about some of their residents and the flooding that went on. And and it's it's ironic that we're talking about this today, uh, because you just got some good news anyway about some money that's going to come from the federal government for do flood control and, and some of the damage that's been done by, by the waters in the west end of the harbor. Uh, I mean, anybody, well, you can't walk down there because it's not safe right now, but I mean, that's, that's a clear example of what can happen, and it can be devastating. And this, this particular um, efficiency exercise that the provincial government is, is doing um, really is a, an example for me of, of risk management. This is exactly how you assess risk management. So the risk is that there could be future flooding. If we reduce the amount of funding by this amount, will we really see that flooding or will we be okay for the next three, four, five years? But we know in the long term, given some of the storms that we've had, that there will be flooding situations and there will be a need for conservation authorities to hold back huge quantities of water. And this is one of my concerns. I mean, Hamilton, for example, we're even going one step further. We're, we're developing programs to, to abate flooding in, in, Upper Stony, in Lower Stony Creek by creating a new wetland in Upper Stony Creek. So we're trying to balance the risk against the climate change and to protect public health and safety. This is one of our jobs 
core functions of an authority. It's it's the new reality, isn't it? I I, I know when the flooding started, we had a way back, I guess, ten twelve years ago, and I was a little longer than that because I guess I was on council at the time. Uh, there was we talked about the East End, but even Ancaster had some terrible flooding, and that's the first time a lot of us heard this term about a hundred year storm. In other words, it's storm that's so severe and so devastating, but they only happen about every hundred years. We get four or five of those every summer now. Yeah, it kind of feels like we have a hundred or a hundred and fifty year storm every week. Yeah, uh, and and and. The, and but that, that's that, that's the new normal now, and and it obviously is. you as a conservation authority, you guys have to learn to deal with that. And the real challenge is that these storms, these downbursts, as, as the climatologists are telling us, are sporadic, and so they're happening in one area of the city. In another area of the city, you may not have any rain at all, but so much water comes down in that one area that you have really significant central or localized flooding. Again, the core tenant of any conservation authority is flood prevention. And this is the area where they chose to find savings. Well, and, and again, I question whether or not those are true savings. But given our, our, our meteorological uh, expertise that we've had here, and given the new normal that we seem to be talking about here, uh, that's a pretty strong argument, Brad, that actually you should be putting more money into this, not taking money away. Uh, I have to admit I was quite surprised that this cut was, was announced, that it was in this specific area of funding to conservation authorities. Um, I didn't see this coming. I don't think anyone did. I think um, previous governments have celebrated how conservation authorities help to protect property and help to protect, protect lives of our citizens by controlling flooding. And even with the controlling of the flooding that we can do, we still experience other flooding within a community. So th- this is a significant risk that we're, we're going to experience, and, and I don't think it's necessary. <laughs> Well, I mean, you just as a city councilor went through this whole discussion. Uh, I know you wear two hats, obviously, on the Conservation Authority, but, I mean, you had to have them come forward and, and do their budget presentations, et cetera. And municipalities are hard-pressed right now to, to give the funding that Conservation Authorities are looking for. So this is a, a real kick in the pants now that the provinces say, by the way, you're not getting much more from us either. Yeah, we're finding more and more municipalities are pushing back against the levies. Uh, the levy is is an amount of money that a conservation authority, based on their watershed under their control, can charge a municipality who's a member of that watershed. And so as they approve the levies, we're seeing more and more municipalities say, no, we we can't afford that, and they're pushing back. And we understand that, but um, we now have conservation authorities who really don't have the financial wiggle room uh, to maintain the services that they were maintaining, and 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 the risk is that something's going to go wrong because of that lack of of funding. What's that going to do? As 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 you sit down, as as you mentioned, you're sitting on both boards, both conservation authorities. Mm-hmm. What kind of pressure does this put on the board now? I mean, because basically you're going to have to reevaluate the kind of services that you're offering. This is a real struggle uh, because it's a, we've already approved our budgets. The levies were already uh, sent out to to local municipalities back in February, and the 30 days are passed, the levies have been approved, or municipalities have objected to them, one or the two. And so right now, the conservation authorities are set with the money that they have that has been approved by local municipalities, and they have to work within that, that, that latitude. And so we have to find savings elsewhere. We've, we've, you know, in Hamilton's case, we've lost $85,000. That's not an insignificant amount of money for uh, the Hamilton Conservation Authority. So we will have to find other programs where we can, can cut, and, and areas of natural restoration is, is one that we are looking at. 
Um, we're looking at um, eliminating our programs where we go out and try to remove invasive species of plant life and in, in, in that are destroying our natural environment, things along those lines. So they're going to have to be furloughed uh, in order to continue our, our flood prevention programs. And, and for all intents and purposes, I mean, you're heading into the busy season. I mean, let's face it, conservation authorities are, are much more uh, popular during the spring and the summer season because people go hiking, they do an awful lot of stuff like this, uh, and they're going to have to face some of these realities right now because you're going to have to make some tough decisions about what's going to be offered and, and when it's going to be offered. And we're seeing more and more media announcements from conservation authorities across the province warning about potential flooding especially in the springtime and with any significant storm. And that's one of our core functions. We have staff who monitor the weather, who look at the mapping and understand this area is going to get a significant downpour and that could result in flooding. And so they send out the warnings. And you're in the media. You see these warnings come across and they hit the the, the news and, and the radio stations and the television stations. That's our job, and so that's what we're talking about here. That's the area of funding that has been removed. So we have to continue providing that service by finding that money elsewhere. Uh, yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, we're talking about this in relation to what's happening here in the Hamilton-Niagara area, and obviously from Mayor, Mayor Ward in the Burlington and Halton area. But this is a province-wide concern uh, because of, of all the stuff that we've talked about here, the, the weather patterns that are developing right now, the, the wetlands that are uh, evidence, and, and we're going to see this. And, and I know, again, this is going to have an impact on just about every community here. And, and you wonder why a government would look at this and say, yeah, we can take money out of that. Uh, and, and that, that kind of goes back to the budget process. And, and I agree with you, Brad. I, we want governments to be fiscally responsible. But you have to wonder sometimes about how they evaluate exactly where they can take money from to try to find those quote-unquote savings. Well, and, and I know the process. I know how the, the finance minister and the premier have to make some, some tough decisions, and then they ask their ministers to make some tough decisions. Uh, and, and in this case, I, I'm hoping that they're going to have some second thoughts about it. I'm hoping that they're going to look at this and say, well, we want to make sure that there's f- funding available specifically for some of the conservation authorities who don't have reserves, who don't have uh, the ability to relocate, reallocate funding. You know, Hamilton Niagara, we have the opportunity to have additional revenue from different programs that we and parks that we actually run. In, in northern Ontario, that's not the case. I mean, conservation authorities are not all created equal in terms of the amount of funding that they have. Well, sure, and, and specific areas, tourism areas, et cetera, maybe, you know, they get a little big piece of the pie I mean, down Niagara, down Niagara, by the falls and things of this nature. Exactly. But that's a different, that's an apples and oranges comparison, isn't it? Yes, that, that's exactly the case. And, and so we have to look at it more holistically, and, and I fear for those smaller conservation authorities, um, but I, I really hope that there's some mechanism in place from the government that, the, that authorities who are struggling will be able to reach out to the government and there'll be some reasonable and pragmatic responses. Just uh, so we can anticipate what might be happening in the weeks ahead here, because uh, you guys are obviously going to have to put your heads together and decide how you're going to handle this. Uh, there are some instances of conservation authorities where there are fees that are applicable. I, do you look at re- rethinking that now? And may, might there be fee increases in some of those services, some of the things, some of the events, some of the uh, the attractions? Well, the challenge is our budget's already been approved, so yeah. all of our promotional appear, uh, material has already been printed, and we've already advertised fees. So that's not likely in this current budget. Um, but in May, the, the Conservation Authority boards will be meeting and staff will be presenting a plan in terms of how we uh, find financial allocations elsewhere to cover the reduction, in Hamilton's case, of 85000 
So so you're stuck with it this year. There's not a whole lot you can do then. You know, not much wiggle room, it sounds like. There's very little wiggle room, uh, and, and I would be completely candid. As you know, if there was, I would, would say, oh, yeah, no problem. We can handle this. It's going to be painful. We are going to have to make some tough choices. Um, but at the end of the day, the boards at the Con- Hamilton Conservation Authority and the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority are both committed to maintaining the flood prevention services and the warning services that we are currently utilizing. They will have to change other programming in order to to offset that loss. You know, you touched on something that was a very contentious issue during the budget process uh, for the city this year, of course, and that was the allocation for conservation authorities. It got pretty pretty ugly sometimes with some, some of the back and forth. Uh, it's going to get worse next year, I can think, because they're going to come back and say, look, I know that you guys don't like doing this, but we need more money. Well, the levy is still under dispute. The levy that yeah. was uh, uh, charged by the Niagara Peninsula Conservation Authority to the city of Hamilton, that's under dispute. The judicial uh, uh, review is, is the, the actual hearing has closed. We're waiting for the judge's decision. So we don't know what that's going to be, but uh, I think you're absolutely correct. And I, I know you're not a psychic, but I think you can see what's coming down the road. You know, the authorities are going to have to raise levies uh, next year, and municipalities are going to push back. And then there's going to be all of these appeals to the, the mining tribunal, which increase the cost to the, the province again. So, you know, it, if we do things in a balance and we're careful, we don't have this type of pushback. Well, uh, yeah, so much for savings. Uh, good luck with this, Brad. It's it's a, a quite a challenge for the conservation authorities and ultimately, obviously, for city councils right around here. Uh, and uh, we'll see how you guys handle it in the days and weeks ahead. Appreciate your time today. We appreciate your support, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Council Brad Clark, also a member, of course, of the uh, both conservation authorities that uh, are impacted here in the Hamilton area. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, though, uh, Washington is the focus for just about everybody today because this is the day we're told that the Mueller report is finally, the redacted Mueller report is finally going to be released. Uh, joining us is uh, Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is a Washington producer and correspondent with Global News in Washington. Good morning, Reggie. How are you today? Good morning. It's a busy uh, day. Yeah, it's a crazy day today. I mean, uh, let's let's start with that. I mean, first of all, the fact that the Attorney General just had a press conference to talk about a report that nobody in the media apparently has seen, nobody in Congress has seen, uh, and, and trying to get questions on this. This, this is really, really kind of crazy the way things are starting to work out. This this is and this was um, I mean, bizarre is, is kind of the best way to say it in the most simplest of terms. Yeah, that fits. this conversation <laughs> that, that we just heard from the attorney general, he basically sounded more like a spokesperson than he did for the leader of the Justice Department right now with uh, how he was trying to uh, uh, explain this uh, report that was uh, written up by the special prosecutor, uh, the special counsel, rather, who we should take note to say the special counsel was not at this press conference to be able to talk about his own report. That's why I say that this is so bizarre. Well, exactly. I mean, for how many years now? We've, well, two and a half years we've been saying the Mueller report. Uh, why wasn't he there today? Did the Attorney General address that? Well, the Attorney General basically kind of in a roundabout way had said, well, look, Robert Mueller worked for my department and it is up to me to be making these conclusions. I'm the one who put this conclusion out basically a month ago telling you that there was no collusion and that obstruction couldn't be charged. So that's why I'm here and not the special counsel. Uh, You have to remember as well that during this press conference we just heard, the Attorney General also said that while he was in discussion with Robert Mueller over the last couple of weeks, he also wasn't in discussion with Robert Mueller on a couple of things over the last couple of weeks. So that's why we 
we say that the, the message that he was giving today was basically one of trying to help out the president as opposed to give the American people and the public as, as in a broader term uh, uh, the information that's in the report. Well, that's that's the concern I think a lot of people have had. And it goes all the way back, as you mentioned, Reggie, to that four-page uh, summary. He, I don't know, Barr doesn't like it to be called a summary, uh, but that he gave just two days after he finally got the report in, in full. Uh, that a lot of people have accused Barr of actually doing the president's bidding. I, and, and that and that's not just Democrats that's saying that. An awful lot of people in the Beltway there are pretty upset about this. Absolutely. And the way that the, that the attorney general was talking today, you'd almost make it seem like that this was kind of just a very friendly thing that was going on, saying that the White House and that the president and that the president's legal counsel and that the president, uh, the White House legal counsel were all helping this investigation along. They really wanted to get this information out there. But it's actually the furthest thing from the truth, because the president refused to sit down with the special counsel for uh, a one on one interview, instead having vetted scripts given to uh, the special counsel investigators. We know that the president at every left, right and turn uh, tried to call this investigation a witch hunt and a hoax and try to kind of get his supporters on Twitter uh, kind of involved in the conversation of shutting down this investigation. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are skeptical and who have questions about how this actually wound up and how the Attorney General's summation of this, regardless of whether you want to call it a conclusion or, or how you want to define it, uh, how he came to this and, and just made it seem like everything was just wonderful for the White House. What's happened over the last 24 hours, Reggie, seems to be uh, really, I, I think probably uh, the concern that that a lot of people had uh, during the confirmation hearings for Barr when he was uh, you know, Trump's choice, obviously, to be the, the new attorney general, uh, that he was a Trump acolyte and that he was going to do Trump's bidding for him. And we go back, obviously, to that big uh, essay that he wrote, basically saying that the president can never be charged with anything. The president can do no wrong while he is the president or she is the president. Uh, and they said, well, yeah, but, you know, this is the way he's going to be. I mean, Trump has always maintained that he wants his attorney general to be his own personal lawyer. And, and that seems to be how Barr is acting. Absolutely. I mean, look, at some point during this conversation, it was around uh, 945, uh, the attorney general basically said in a roundabout way that, you know, as the president said from the beginning, there was no collusion. And as the special counsel report shows this, the uh, there is no evidence uh, that that shows that there is collusion. But for the attorney general to sit there and say, well, as the president said from the beginning, uh, is is an almost insane way to look at things, because the deputy attorney general who's been in charge of this investigation for the last several months didn't say what the president was saying that from the beginning there was no collusion. Otherwise, this two-year investigation would have been halted at the very beginning. So that's why, you know, you're right. When the people are questioning whether or not the attorney general is here to do the bidding of the president, uh, the things that he said today uh, have basically opened up more questions than, than he was able to answer things. Well, and, it's, and it's, it's becoming somewhat frustrating, I guess, for an awful lot of people now when you start seeing some of the comments that are going on. And, and obviously, every time somebody raises some of these concerns and questions, it gets labeled as, as quote-unquote fake news. But, I mean, uh, when, when Chris Wallace from Fox News, who just tweeted a couple of minutes ago, says that it looks like Barr is acting for, as the president's personal attorney, I mean, that, that's his network. That's the president's network, Fox News. And if they're pointing the finger at him, then there's, there's, this doesn't pass the smell test. Well, absolutely. I mean, the president's kind of been on the outs with Fox News for the last couple of days. He's been questioning the network. He was asking why they were having uh, Bernie Sanders come in and do a town hall. He was questioning whether or not Fox News was inviting Bernie Sanders supporters in. So the president's trying to step away from Fox News a little bit because they're actually trying to kind of put more broad focus on, on Trump and potentially give a two-sided version, which we haven't seen for the last several years. But uh, that's basically a, a point that Democrats and, and left-leaning media have been making for a long time, is that things simply don't add up. 
The president puts people in place who are there to help him and not so much help the country. And that's what we saw with the attorney general today. It's what we saw. Uh, it's what we're seeing with a number of the acting positions that are uh, kind of leading cabinet level positions across the U.S. government right now. The president lines his his men up and his women up to follow him and not follow what's best. Reggie, as you've been reporting over the last little while, we we have not heard from Mueller, obviously, since this is uh, about a month, I guess now, since he issued this report or gave it to Barr anyway. But there have been rumblings in Washington over the last couple of weeks, as you've been telling us, uh, uh, from people that worked on the investigation. I know that the team is pretty much broken up, but there are people, I guess, that are kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, suggesting that what Barr is saying and how Barr is characterizing this is not the report that they gave them, that he's putting his own spin on that. And I think that's a part of the reason why we didn't see the special counsel or the investigators or anybody from that team, even at a low level, standing on the stage with the attorney general today. Because you're right, there have been people who worked on this report for the last 22 months who say that the the information that they found, that the conversations that they had, uh, what was put into this 400-page document wasn't just for fun and it wasn't just for nothing. There was information that was in there that was either skewed or spun or simply ignored by the attorney general as he was speaking in that summary of, of conclusions and as he was speaking on stage today. And that's where some of that anger and some of that uh, frustration is inside the special counsel because, again, they didn't spend all of this taxpayer money just for the fun of it. They were doing it to try to get to the bottom of something and to not allow them to express their point of view or to kind of uh, uh, walk back any comments that the attorney general is making is, again, raising more questions. Reggie, were you surprised that, that Barr has taken ownership of this? I, I know there was one question uh, during the segment this morning where they asked, as you articulated, that where was where's Mueller? essentially. This is my report, he said. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it. In other words, he seems to have shoved Mueller off to the background as as almost an irrelevant part of this now. Absolutely. And, and and we knew that that was basically going to happen. He he said during his confirmation hearing that he was all about transparency and he wanted to uh, be able to open this up. But then he went on today to basically say, well, look, I don't have to make this report uh, public at all. That's not what I'm supposed to do. These reports aren't supposed to go public, although that's not how things have worked in the past. And he was basically saying, well, I'm doing everybody a favor right now uh, because I said that I would be transparent. But it was that, that little bit of attitude and that little bit of, of insult to the special counsel by saying, well, look, the information he gave to me was supposed to be confidential, so I'm going to go forward and give it to you anyways, making it seem like that he's been in charge of this investigation for eons. But also remember, the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, was the person in charge of this from the moment that Jeff Sessions recused himself in 2017. And deputy attorney general Rosenstein sat behind uh, uh, the attorney general today and didn't say a word about anything. Yeah, that's that's kind of frustrating. Uh, this is not the, the William Barr that sat in front of the Senate committee for the confirmation hearings. I mean, he was he was pretty robust about his, his in- inclination at that point to make as much of this public as possible. He seems to be recanting that now. Uh, he, he is. And there, again, it's, it's more questions as to, well, what was he saying? Well, he was under oath. What was he trying to just put a smoke and mirrors kind of situation? And how are things going to play out once this actually goes to public? Because remember, there are going to be redactions that are inside of this report uh, that he says are needed to be able to protect grand jury testimony or to protect what he's calling uh, uh, peripheral third party people that may have been talked to during the discussions uh, with the special counsel, but not charged. And that is causing a lot of problems when it comes to transparency, because you have to remember there were people close to the president that were spoken with not charged with any crimes so is the information that they provided the investigators going to be kind of kept quiet and out of the public and not allow us to kind of dig deeper into what conversations were had that could impact the president reggie as as you and jackson prosco have been reporting over the last seven or eight days i guess now in anticipation of this thing being released uh there's a lot of nervousness within the white house we're told but from staff members who may have talked to people in the in the Mueller team uh, that are concerned now that what they said is actually 
obviously going to be there in that report, and the president probably is not going to like what they've done. No, we've been hearing that for the last couple of weeks now, that the president's uh, kind of rampage that he may go on after this report is fully released, although we've already been told that he's read this uh, report, that people were going to be, uh, you know, potentially fearing for their jobs or fearing for uh, any kind of retribution uh, from within the administration for things that they said, which again goes counter to what the attorney general said just within the last hour, saying that, well, everyone inside the White House was very willing to get this investigation going. And they, uh, they wanted people to be able to have conversations. And the president was happy that people were able to help out. So we're again getting two different stories as to what happened here. Uh, you know, whether or not there's going to be any retaliation in the White House, I mean, we'll find out if the president tweets something that people are going to be leaving in the coming hours and days. Uh, but again, th- there are several questions that are still unanswered when it comes to this report. And once we get our hands on these 400 pages within the next kind of 45 minutes to maybe just over an hour, you can imagine how many more questions are going to be unanswered. Reggie, the uh, New York Times reported, I guess it was about five o'clock yesterday afternoon, uh, that uh, the White House. Uh, lawyers and the White House staff had actually seen this report, and they were given the report in a, in, a, in a manner so they could prepare a rebuttal for that. Legal experts saying that's highly unusual. I mean, often a lot of the people that have seen this report were actually part of the focus of, of the investigation, and to actually show them what the investigation showed is, is well, some people are saying it's not just irregular, it's, it's downright wrong. Well, and we've been asking uh, officials inside the White House for weeks now whether or not the president or his lawyers or White House lawyers had been seeing uh, any information or had been in any kind of contact with the Justice Department. And the answers were very cagey. Nobody was saying yes. Nobody was saying no. There were people that were off the record without the right to be able to talk in an open setting, saying, well, conversations could be happening. We now know today from the Attorney General that, yes, in fact, White House lawyers did get a chance to review the information. They had to give the president uh, the ability to assert executive privilege on uh, keeping any information out that he may find could be uh, a risk to maybe national uh, security. But then we found out that his personal lawyers were also given a copy of this uh, report, and not just yesterday, but sometime within the last week that that somebody like uh, Rudy Giuliani was able to go over this information. Now, they weren't given an ability to redact anything else, but they were able to see what was in there and start to uh, to draft their rebuttal because there were questions uh, being raised just at the end of last week. How can the president's lawyers be uh, preparing to rebut something that nobody's been able to see yet? Now we know that they were given a copy. What about that? What, what are you hearing from uh, the, the not just the, the Democrats, but even Republicans I know that were concerned about this and want this full report released. Uh, the fact that, that, that Barr has a press conference and talks about this and essentially explains what we're going to read in this report and, and before the Congress even sees it. Well, I mean, Republicans are, you know, it's a very fractured group right now, but there's a good number of them who still stand behind the president. And they were happy to see that this come to the public's eye today. They were happy to hear uh, the attorney general say that there was no uh, collusion, that uh, that he was able to not charge the president with obstruction. These are the Republicans who are, a lot of them, up for election next year. So they're towing the line of the president. They've been standing with the president as he's been calling for this report to be released, saying that he's been completely vindicated. Uh, there are a number of Republicans, though, who say that the actions with inside the Justice Department right now need to be called into question. And, you know, they're questioning this whole motive now to investigate the investigators, uh, basically asking, you know, should we be looking at what's going on, uh, you know, in the leading up to the special counsel, as opposed to just kind of moving forward now and trying to get this agenda put forth. But Barr seemed to be splitting hairs a little bit, though. I'm just seeing some of the the text here from uh, some of the questions that were asked. Uh, And I guess somebody did ask about hacking. And as I see Barr explaining this, Reggie, he essentially said that, look, to be guilty of of collusion, uh, the White House, the, the Trump team would actually have had to have done the hacking, not just benefited from it. That's kind of splitting hairs, isn't it? 
Well, I mean, especially since collusion is not a crime. You can't charge somebody with collusion uh, because collusion would have to have something underlying in order for collusion to happen. He was basically saying, well, look, the president's team didn't uh, participate in the spreading of these documents, so they can't have any kind of collusion. Uh, the big question that wasn't answered was, yes, we knew that they didn't take part in that hacking, but did they willingly know and accept that that hacking was taking place? And uh, did they did they acknowledge that the Russian government or, or, or Russian entities inside inside the country were trying to uh, kind of disseminate this this false information or hack into accounts and give things to WikiLeaks. That's a different question that the attorney general didn't actually respond to was what did they actually know, not did they participate? Well, the other element to this, too, and I guess that's one of the questions that maybe we're going to get some answers to when we finally see this report in about an hour's time. Uh, the difference between wrongdoing and criminal. And, and Barr seems to keep harping on the criminal aspect of this, uh, but there could well be wrongdoing. But if that's the case, he's not talking about that. No, he's not talking. And you'll also notice that we really didn't get into that whole obstruction conversation other than he him saying that, well, you know, the evidence that we went through didn't show that there was any obstruction, but then didn't give any of that evidence that the that uh, the special counsel had said, you know, did or did not exonerate the president. Uh, you know, one thing that was important to hear uh, William Barr say today was that the special counsel didn't, uh, you know, indicate his purpose was to leave the decision to Congress. But then the attorney general said, I didn't have a conversation with the special counsel when I was making my decision to say that there was no obstruction charge. This, again, leaves more questions being, well, what did you see inside that report that you didn't want to talk to the special counsel about when he's the one who ultimately left everything open, asking you to kind of help it out? Well, the Congressional Committee says they want to call Mueller. Uh, that's that's, that's going to be a big day, isn't it? That's going to be a huge day, especially since we heard that this morning uh, from Democratic leadership that they were going to ask the special counsel to testify ASAP. was also interesting because within minutes of that, Michael Cohen, the former uh, fixer and attorney for the president, also put a tweet out saying, well, look, once this all comes to light, I will be the one who's able to fill in these blanks because I sat for 70 hours with these investigators. I'm ready to tell all once it's my turn. This is not over by any stretch of the imagination. Great reporting on this, Reggie. Thank you so much for this. I know what you'll be reading all through Easter weekend. Got a couple of hours to go. <laughs> Thanks again, Reggie. We'll talk Thanks. soon. Reggie Cicchini, of course, uh, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.